1: weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day. Please subscribe to our daily email newsletter or download our smartphone app for a daily feast of China news that will keep you informed about the news you need to know from China in just a few minutes every day. We also publish our news briefs and a range of originally reported articles on our website. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Manhattan, where I am joined, of course, by the man whose unbalanced rants I blame entirely for China's illiberal turn after 2009, Mr. Jeremy Goldhorn. How are you, sir?
2: I'm fine, thank you, Kaiser, although I'm a little bit more worried about America's illiberal turn immediately after I moved here. And I'll find a way
1: to blame you for that, too. I mean, is it a coincidence that you moved there and then... Anyway. Today on Cineco, we are delighted to be talking to one of the true legends of the US China business relationship, Virginia Kamsky is chairman and CEO of Kamsky Associates Incorporated, a strategic advisory firm. She first came to China with what was then the Chase Manhattan Bank way back in 1978, even before reform and opening actually began. In 1980, she founded Kamsky Associates Incorporated, which was one of the first U.S. companies to be granted a business license in China. Her company has worked with a very wide range of industries, from chemicals, to finance, to automotive, to media, and she is widely admired for her business acumen as well as for her mentoring of many up-and-coming business people. Uh, We are very fortunate to have her with us on Seneca to share some of her experiences and insights. Ginny, welcome to Seneca.
0: Well, thank you, Kaiser, for having me today. It's great to be with you and Jeremy. Your introduction makes me feel like I can't really quite live up to that, but I appreciate your being so kind and so gracious. No
2: need for Chinese modesty, Jim. I know. I was actually thinking about it in Chinese and then I translated it to English. Oh, <laughs> Dwayne, <laughs> <laughs> So, Dinny, like many people who've um, enjoyed successful careers in business in China, you actually started off studying Chinese humanities and the Chinese language. Um, you occasionally encounter people, maybe most famously in recent years, Jack Perkowski, um, who would say that the language just isn't that important and that trying to learn it is actually a waste of time. He himself famously only knows a few phrases in Chinese. You, by contrast, speak excellent Chinese and read it with facility. What advice would you have for young people weighing the pros and cons of sinking all those years into the study of Chinese language (laughs) and culture? (laughs) How important is it for business?
0: It's extremely important. On a scale of 1 to 10, I would say being able to speak Chinese is a 15 And I had the advantage when I was 10 years old of having a mother who told me, she in Chinese, Ming Ling, she instructed me, demanded that I learn Chinese. So it really wasn't a choice for me. And it was just an enormous advantage. And I believe that children today uh, should be raised speaking both Chinese and English. If you look at the world's population, you have 25% of the world that speaks Chinese. And absolutely um, no excuse for, particularly Americans, um, not learning the language. In, In America, one tends to only speak English and not really learn a second language fluently. But my mother was very concerned about world peace. And she said, unless there were more Americans that could speak Chinese, when China got its act together, that they would be extremely important on the world stage. And Americans needed to be able to communicate with Chinese. And that's what drove her. It was world peace that drove her to literally force me to learn Chinese. And a Chinese interpreter for Chairman Mao and Zhou Enlai named Ji Chao Zhu once said to me, Ginny, you just got up in the Great Hall of the People, and you said that your mother, Mian Chang forced you to learn Chinese. He said, you really should use the term Gu li to encourage you. And I said, Ambassador Ji, at that point, he was ambassador to England. I said, she didn't encourage me. She forced me. And you know, I bless her for that. She's 97 years old today. And um, I have to admit that I have done the same for my own child. Uh, His first language is Mandarin. And he's very interested in finance. And luckily, now when you go to college, when I went to college, it was, if you were interested in Chinese, you studied East Asian studies. If you were at an advanced level when you entered college, which I was given that I started when I was 10. Uh, when you topped out, uh, you went into Wen Yan Wen. So you studied classical classical Chinese, right? So it was all classical Chinese poetry. And I had an advantage of the chairman of the East Asian Studies Department at my university when I was applying for a PhD program, because that was all you could do in those days. China was essentially closed. There was Mm -hmm. nothing you could do with the language, except become a, a scholar of classical Chinese. And I was Translating parts of *Huo Meng and you know *The Dream of the Red Chamber* and various other Chinese classical novels, and he said, "Jenny, you do not belong in a library, getting dusty." He said, "You belong <laughs> in business." And I looked at him like he was totally mad. And he said, "I want you to stay." I was at Princeton. He said, "I want you to stay here for graduate school. I want you to go to the Woodrow Wilson School, and I want you to major in economics and statistics." And I guess. I can't really credit myself. It's really more the fact that I have had mentors in my life who have told me, literally instructed me what to do, and I've been the obedient
1: one. Well, I think it sounds like you were a good personality fit for this whole thing with your filial piety and your your immodest modesty. (laughs) Jeremy, we're doing pretty well so far. I mean, we're taking all the boxes, you know, all those years sunk into learning Chinese. Making our kids learn Chinese. And then when
0: your kid's Chinese surpasses yours. Oh, that was a long
1: time ago. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, the first time that happened and my son corrected me, I looked absolutely horrified. But that lasted about 15 seconds. And then I realized that's actually a good thing.
2: Yeah,
1: it is. Absolutely. So, Ginny, actually, uh, in a conversation we had with John Pomfret a couple of months back, um, he mentioned that back in the 1980s and the 90s, your consultancy actually employed almost exclusively women and that you've given a gigantic start to many women in their careers. In his words, you really allowed them to be all that they can be. And, you know, he was talking about it in the context of the early part of the 20th century when a lot of American women who really hit very low glass ceilings in the States and were were sort of kept out of many professions – Really flourished in China, and that was sort of China's contribution to the American feminist movement. Tell us about your own experience with that, and, and and comment maybe on how far women have come and what kinds of obstacles they still face, both within the workforce in China and within you know the community of foreigners who are doing business in China. So, was that a deliberate strategy on your part?
0: Um, I looked for the best people, and what I found in when I I first moved to China in nineteen seventy eight seventy nine when I was working for Chase Manhattan Bank is that if if anything it was neutral or better to be female in business there was absolutely no prejudice against women and i remember i was a lending officer at chase manhattan bank and i wrote the first loan agreement and my colleague my boss at chase i was sitting with the jimbu bujang the minister of metallurgy and my boss from chase said you know you would never have this opportunity if you were in America to be drafting a loan agreement with the Minister of Metallurgy, and that really s- struck a chord for me. That was it. Was very clear to me that in China, you can do as much as you want to do, as capable as you are. The Chinese have a- always been open and have always embraced you, whether you're male or female. But being female. Being a lending officer in China in the late 70s, I just found it, um they were just so welcoming. It was a, in very, very sharp contrast to the United States. When I was first hired at Chase, I went through what they call a credit interview to test your banking skills, of which I had mm. none, <laughs> and they saw on my resume that I speak both Chinese and Japanese, and they said... We do not send women to Japan. And I said, oh, that's no problem because I have no interest in going to Japan. The only reason I studied Japanese was to get a PhD in East Asian studies. You needed to be able to read and write Japanese as well as Chinese. So I was fine with that. And I went through an 18-month training program at Chase, fantastic program. Nine months into it, I got a call that I was being sent to Japan, which, you know, really surprised (laughs) me because – you know in those days it was okay to say we don't send women to japan and there was a lawsuit brought by the generation before me at chase by women and one of the complaints they raised was that there'd never been a female lending officer in tokyo so here i was whisked out of the chase credit training program and i was sent over to tokyo to run chase's credit training program we restructured chase's debt to japanese trading companies They have in Japan opposite the Chase Bank is the Bankers Club. They did not allow women into the Bankers Club, right? This this is just unthinkable in a place like China. And clients of Chase would come uh, to see what a female banker looked like. Uh, So it was a very, certainly very close to women. Um, I was an oddity. I think maybe in some ways it helped the bank. But in China, just... The opposite, very, very welcoming, very supportive, wanting to do everything possible to help you. And there, there have been women in China who have been wonderful mentors to me. One was the Xiao Zhang, the president, I guess you would say, of Fudan University, Madam Xie Xida, mm-hmm. um, Xie Lao. And, and she had come to the United States, went to Smith, got her PhD from MIT. She, rose to become, I believe, party secretary of Shanghai, a member of the CCPPCC. Uh, she gave me great support during tough times in China, talking to me about staying the course that it was important to have presence in China where you could help foreigners communicate with the Chinese. And also Madame Wu Yi, who oh, um nice. I met her I guess when she was a vice mayor of Beijing and then became mayor and minister of foreign trade and was put in charge after SARS uh, broke out. I knew as soon as Wu was put in charge that the SARS issue was going to be
1: no match for her. <laughs> <not>
2: no match <laughs> right? for the, she was great. She was awesome. Life.
0: Right. Um, so there are women there who have helped women. And I, you know, it's something that if you look at Mao's legacy, that women hold up half the sky. Do you credit that to him? There are a lot of issues that people take. Negatively vis-à-vis they their positives and their negatives. I would say one of his greatest contributions was creating equality between men and women.
2: And uh, do you feel that there's been any regression of that? As you know, certain books like later Hong Fincher's book on Leftover women sort of make the case that things have been going backwards. What's your sense of that?
0: I don't feel like it's going backwards. I you know Xi Jinping now is in a period of making some changes and my understanding is that's going to continue to happen. I'm very interested in seeing whether or not some women emerge at a higher level. I think we had that before not as much now, but I don't underestimate the possibility that that will happen. You look at women who have created a lot in China, someone, a co-CEO of Soho, and I'm sure you know those yeah, wonderful Jiangxin, skyscrapers, yeah, right, right? Junction and and um, we just ran the reservoir together in New York City. She's she's formidable, I have to say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's an example of someone who lived in a dormitory in a textile mill, managed to get herself a scholarship to go to college in the UK. Work for Goldman Sachs, and then start her own company and be very successful and There's a group of women who are all chur. you know they're close uh we're close supportive of each other. I think it is a positive environment. I actually do not see a going back in China in terms of the role of women it's It's not whether you're male or female it's based on how capable are you um which is had not been the case in the US when I first started out and certainly was not the case in Japan. And I would say it's that Japan has still not come very far.
2: Could you talk a little bit about what your firm actually does in China? Maybe share with us a, a case study, if if that makes sense. And uh, before the podcast, we were talking about changes in, in your work due to right. different direction of flows of capital. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Right. Well, in, in some ways, I'm a, a bellwether for what's going on in China, because in the early days, China had no money. And if there were companies that wanted to do business with China, when I first started in China... There was no joint venture law. There was no rule that allowed for wholly owned foreign enterprises. There were foreign companies who wanted to manufacture in China for the Chinese market, did not want to have a Chinese partner. So before there was a wholly owned foreign enterprise law, I established the first foreign company I think it had a license 001, it might have been 002 by the time we got around <laughs> to finalizing ban shou shu, you know, getting all the documents in place. But it was to manufacture canned sealant product in China because China, if you remember, there was a big issue with mushrooms in cans and them being exported to the US and botulism. So by having this canned sealant compound, the quality of food coming from China in cans was something that... Went way up on on the um, scale in terms of of health, and the company again didn't wanted this to be wholly foreign owned. Um, so that was that was a very early project again before there was a law. Then the joint venture law was introduced in 1979. But keep in mind, China did not have any foreign exchange reserves. So if you ask me for a case study. The very first transaction I did was a molybdenum mine. I learned that word in Chinese. Um, it's easier in Chinese. It's, I don't actually know molybdenum
1: <laughs> in Chinese. <laughs> it's so
0: easy. It's
1: mu. Oh, and mu. it has a
0: mu a pong, like uh-huh. as in an eye, and then a jin for like metal, metal or gold, huh? right? A molybdenum mine, which was just, it was in Xi'an, and you had to go past the terracotta warriors, which had only just been discovered. I remember going down a ladder with a... With a lit candle. It was really quite fascinating. And it was probably (laughs) the mine was called Jindui Chung. It was probably an hour past there. So the Chinese needed the technology to develop the mine, they needed equipment, they needed financing, but there was no money. So what did I do? I structured a barter transaction so that we shipped in all the equipment that was needed, transferred the technology.
1: And they paid you in molybdenum. Uh they
0: paid us in molybdenum concentrates. Now, you have the risk that if they didn't actually deliver, you would be out, you know, that would not be a good bank risk, shall we say, and that would not be good for my reputation or for anybody. So the Ministry of Metallurgical Industries, Ye Bu at the time, provided a guarantee, which was the full faith and credit of the People's Republic of China. So that was the first co- first commercial bank loan, and I, I remember when I called my boss, which is not easy to do in those days, back in the US, he said, Ginny, you have to have a lawyer with you. And I said, well, China does not issue visas to lawyers. And (laughs) he said to me, well, will you at least call our counsel in Hong Kong and read the document to them? So I did that. And I had two pieces of paper. So I managed to do a $20 million loan agreement on two pieces of paper. And I had force majeure. The only issue that they had on the Chinese side was acts of God, that right. God should not be with a <laughs> – it shouldn't be with a capital G. But in those days, everything was by telex, and everything was in caps. So I was able to say, I think I'll be able to ma- figure out how to do this, and we were able to get that through. So, so there, that was back in 79, <laughs> and that that went through – China marched out its first law student, um, who was Gao Qing. So he was on the opposite oh, he side. Was the first, law. yes, he was. He was China's first lawyer. Wow. So he was on the opposite side of the negotiating so now he table he the China's a, Big Sovereign Fund. Um, he was the first president of China Investment Corporation right. and their first CIO, and he's now at a think tank oh, at Tsinghua right, 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 right. Right, 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 providing advice on on the economy. So. You know that was that was the first transaction. So what am I doing today? The paradigm has switched. Wait, the,
1: before you go into that, I just wanted to point out. <laughs> you want to know it's, more it's, about molybdenum? No, no it's, <laughs> no, it's it's worth pointing out. I think that this is the same thing that Japan was doing. They were doing these sort of uh, infrastructure for for um, sort they, they would provide capital, they would provide infrastructure, they would build a road to the mine, and they would be paid in the copper or the coal or the you know the, the cobalt yeah, or whatever good it was. point. Yeah, and uh, it's the same thing I think that China is doing today in Africa. At least that's what Deborah Rodigam has been arguing. Oh, that's an
0: excellent book she just wrote. Yeah, yeah. we'll. we'll, So
1: you um, you were about to tell us what you're doing today and how that's changed. All right. So no more two pieces of paper and a phone (laughs) call and telexes.
0: Well, just even to have a telex machine, I mean, that's you know one. It took a long time. There were just a handful of us who were granted telex machines. but I used to have to go to the Diembaldalo, which is the, I don't know what you say, how you say that in English, but... Um, telegraph building. I the, don't remember the telegraph. my first
2: internet connection in <laughs> Me too, right. <laughs> Public.bta.com. Uh, yeah. yeah,
0: so I'd go over there and punch out the tapes, you know, with the holes in them and feed it through, and there were no business people. They were all journalists or they were diplomats, and then there was me, or there might have been one or two Japanese, um, but again, when I... I started my own firm, the Gongsang Guan Lijiu, which I guess is a State Administration of Exchange Controls, approved 20 American companies. And I was on there between, it was in alphabetical order. It was between General Electric and Mobile Oil, which <laughs> I think my mother still has up on the wall. I don't, I don't have a copy of it. It's the sort of thing that a mother, mother loves. But that was then. And now to think that that china would be the country that is investing out that is buying strategic assets it's buying that it was initially started with treasury bills but now it's it's obviously been diversified into other areas uh, and that's been very very active so you know we're sitting around in new york and there's a reason we're in new york because the chinese are also here so those same companies that had no money are now looking, they've targeted specific assets and outbound investment. They're the ones with the money and it's America that's poor. So the paradigm has changed. It's just, it's changed completely. And if you had asked me if I had expected that, I would say absolutely not. So it's, it's extremely interesting. Every day you get up and you just, it's you're not doing the same thing because the landscape changes. And this has been a change that has the first outbound investment I worked on was in 2008. And it was Chem China's acquisition of a portfolio company of CVC called Adisio. And it's a Paris based agricultural chemicals company. And Ren Zhenxin, who's the chairman of Chem China, we started working closely together then. And the transaction was 400 million euro. Acquisition and it was done from beginning to end in 60 days. And that was in, I'm sorry, that was 2006. If you go into the lobby of ChemChina, you'll actually see their history. And that's, they show on their outbound investment that that's their first transaction. And we all know that they've purchased Pirelli, they're in the process of acquiring Syngenta. Uh, So, transactions this size, you know, this scale, this significant in terms of uh, really making a difference in the world. That's what I see taking place now.
1: Fantastic. Ginny, maybe you could also share with us a case where things didn't go so well, or where you didn't meet with success. I mean, we're all sure. supposed to have to, to learn from our <laughs> I failures. Got, I got or,
0: all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it where where good, would you like to here start here a, here on failures. Good
1: Yeah, no, I mean, just a, a particularly maybe a, a, an illustrative one that maybe shows maybe how often American companies might might blunder in China.
0: No, it's, um you know, sometimes you can blunder and you don't understand why you blunder. And you need to learn from those mistakes. And the first project that I worked on at Chase was the building of the, what we thought was going to be the Chinese World Trade Center. And there was a consortium that the chairman of Chase put together, and it was made up of Kaiser Um Engineering, just uh, a la your name. It was Turner Construction. It was Skidmore Owings and Merrill. Chase was doing the financing. So we had this whole consortium put together. The party on the Chinese side was the Ministry of Foreign Trade, and we negotiated for probably eleven months straight. I lived in in those days in the Beijing hotel. They didn't have any space, so when you checked into the Beijing hotel, if you were lucky enough to check in you had to have a roommate. And I asked that my roommate be a woman who actually headed up Turner's business in China. So at least it was someone I knew, and we were working on the same deal. And we slaved over this for close to a year. And then we received a a telex that said, I'm sorry to inform you, but the project has been canceled. And I I can't begin to tell you the amount of work and effort that went into that, and none of us understood it. And it wasn't until years later that I was able to figure out that we had not conferred with, where in this country, you'd laugh at the thought of it, but a research institute that actually advises the authorities who are making a decision as to whether or not they're going to go move forward with a project. So, you know, in America, when you're doing a deal, the thought of working with a research institute and Having them help, you know, helping them to understand what your objective is. You know, I didn't even know what a research institute was, but I know today that when we're looking at doing a project in China or a company comes to me and says, we're having issues with our project in China, I'll try to put together the regulatory landscape and you know, which research institutes, I will never forget research institutes and how important they are, which ones will be important in terms of weighing in in the process. Um, There's really so,
1: n- no analogy in America. I mean, mm, like that, not
0: really. I mean, I have a huge, high really...
1: Company that does a feasibility study or...
0: Right. Well, I have very high regard for Brookings. Um, Chung Lee is one of the people who I follow. I read his latest book. I think is all his books are excellent. It's not... That's probably the closest. The National Committee on U.S.-China Relations is obviously has really superb people in there. They turn out very good materials, but there's nothing quite like the research institutes that are connected to either Tsinghua or in the insurance industry. It's Renda, People's University. In other cases, it may be Fudan. But that's something that one needs to navigate and to understand. So yeah, uh, that was a big mistake. And there was a lot of time spent, a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of money. Interestingly, the Ministry of Foreign Trade invited us back and agreed to pay all the expenses that had been incurred. So it wasn't a complete failure, um, but the deal itself never got over the finish line. We just did not have a clue who we should have been conferring with.
2: Wow. Uh, Ginny, with the caveat that you're not a macroeconomist, nonetheless, I think, you know, given your experience, uh, you are in some ways uniquely qualified to talk about the general health of of the Chinese economy. You've seen it through numerous cycles. Uh, You have a very clear perspective on how far it's come, and you've generally held fast against the bearishness that surges with some regularity, particularly of late. I think, you know, at least Kaiser and I and many other people have been in China, we tend to remain confident in the ability to muddle through. Uh, does that still hold for you?
0: Uh, absolutely. Uh, muddle through is a good term. I have, as you point out, Jeremy, I've been through ups and downs, some very tough periods in China, very tough periods for foreigners. I don't know if you all over in China during a period called spiritual pollution, wu oh, yeah, um, ran, right? Wuan, right? It, it lasted a very short time, but it was very anti-foreign. And friends of mine would say, you know, ride this out. And if you read the news, I remember after in the early 80s, the cover of maybe it was Time or Newsweek was Dung's door swings wide open and there'd be another... Newspaper that says dung's door has swung shut. So, you just you you stay the course. And I have seen through very tough times that things have a way of of working out. After the financial crisis, uh, the Chinese invited a group of us in. It was led by President Carter. and and it was for the anniversary of the normalization of relations between the U.S. and China. And right after the financial crisis, we went to Zhongnanhai, the compound of the leaders, and we met with the then premier. And he laid out what China's plans were to stimulate the economy and to spend money on infrastructure and keep that economy moving forward. And it was very clear to those of us on the Western side, that China was truly resilient and that they were going to probably be less affected than the rest of the world, which is what actually proved to be the case. So I would say never underestimate the resiliency of China. Uh, They've got some very smart people, and they also know when to look for foreign input and foreign advice. But again, you have Think tanks in China that are made up of people who have been trained overseas have worked in China, and they really have the interests of the Chinese economy, the future of China, at their core. in
1: uh, In in our conversation so far, you've you've uh, mentioned a number of government bureaucracies. You've mentioned Guangchangju. You've <laughs> men- mentioned uh, you know the the ferrous metals, or I guess it was the, the no, you're right.
0: Words. It was uh, it was Yejinbu, and then they split into.
1: Ferris uh, and non ferris right. Uh, So government relations are invariably an important part for any market entry strategy for companies, at least of a certain size. But for for years now, people who have just enough knowledge of China to be a danger to themselves and and to others, they've made a real fetish of guanxi. I mean, it's now an English word practically. I mean, you see it all the time. My my sense is that 90% of the time, they're just making way too much of the idea. I mean, of course, personal relationships help get things done as is the case really anywhere. But there are circumstances in which this is not just, I think, a tired cliche. There's something peculiarly Chinese about a relationship maybe that requires a kind of cultural finesse. What's What's your take on Guanxi and, and where and when do you think it's appropriate to treat it as something that is peculiar to, to Chinese business or to Chinese governmental relations?
0: That's a really good question. And the way you're leading with this question, I have to say that I bristle when people use the term "guanxi." (laughs) Um, I I really don't like it, and the reality is there's no shortcut. Uh, It's just it's hard work. Living in China, speaking the language, being a trusted friend—you know—I have Chinese friends who I have enormous trust in, and vice versa, and. Is that Guanxi? No. We've known each other for several decades. It's friendship. And the Chinese take friendship very seriously. My my son, you know, who is now nineteen years old, has several Chinese friends and he's actually observed, he said, you know, friendships in China have a lot more meaning than they have in the United States. Your friends in China are there for you to really to give you advice. So it's just sort of interesting that a nineteen year old would have that perspective. But you know, is that Guanxi? You make friends through the years. They'll tell you what you're thinking about makes no sense. I may be working on a strategy for a company into China and sort of bounce off of them what they would think. And they may have some very clear input and that can be helpful, but you, you need to have lots of inputs. You need to look at financial data. You need to look at the competitive landscape. You need to think about successes. And we also think about failures and what's worked before. You put together recommendations for how companies should proceed. You know, so this this Guanxi Wang, you know, this this whole concept that nothing gets done except with Guanxi. I, I, I don't like
2: that. Right, um, and I think
1: it's certainly less true these days too. I mean, as China becomes more sort of institutionally regularized, right.
2: Right, right. Uh, are there other cliches of Chinese business that you think should be retired or refuted? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's see. Drinking Mao Tai like they used to drink Mao Tai. Oh, God. I personally am glad that that has lessened, um, <laughs> shall I mean, we say? wasn't even really
1: that true. It's not like, I don't know, I mean, that, that sort of Baijiu banqueting etiquette thing that everyone – writes in their damn business books i don't know i mean i got away with it with my liver more or less intact and
0: (laughs) well it's you know i i think meals in china it's it's a sign of um friendship and you know the fish is always served at the end because it's the hominem fishes for surplus and they want you to have more rather than less so you know, it's very kind. It's very friendly. It shows that you've made an effort. But the Mao Tai contests of the 1980s were pretty intense. And the Minister of Metallurgy had been the Fubuzhang Vice Minister of mm-hmm. Shiyobu. So Ministry of, of Energy, right in Petroleum. Thank you. And his name was Tang, Tang Ke. And there were three leaders named Wang, and they would say, Three, wang, three wongs do not equal a single tang. So tang was like the most formidable drinker, and they would say, you know, Hai Liang, right, the capacity of the sea. So, you know, I've, I've continued to do a lot of work in the metallurgical side. They were and are my host organization in China. It's now the Ministry of It's Yejin which is Metallurgical Corporation of China, and you know, he has passed away. But I just, I remember these just unbelievable banquets with him. But you don't have that intensity in a matter of face of how many glasses of Tai you can drink. And then, you know, I'd have to go to the Ministry of Metallurgy the next day and teach accounting and corporate finance after my record with Tang Ke was 27 glasses of Tai And I actually won. He gave up after wow. 26. <laughs> and I will never do that again. I was probably about 26 years old. Um, Back but when we
1: were indestructible.
0: Yeah. Those are days that I am really glad are long past.
1: Um, <laughs> hear, you know, hear.
0: it's also in the early days in doing business, there was one building, it's still there, called Arlie Go. And there were nine corporations that were given the right to enter into contracts with foreign companies. So in some ways. Things were very simple in those days. If you were selling machinery, it was China National Machinery Import and Export Corporation or Match Impex for short. Or if it was metals, it was China National Metals. It was min-metals as yeah. opposed to the Ministry of Metallurgy was the, pro- the, you know, we did the project financing, but buying and selling metals. Everything was done in one building. So I remember David Rockefeller when he was chairman of Chase and he was a wonderful first boss. It so be very hard to follow that act because- he treated everybody with so much respect and dignity. And he would say to me, Ginny, it's so amazing how no matter what CEO walks into my office, you always know which company they should be signing a contract with. And I think, you know, that was overly generous on his part, because again, there were only nine You're companies, nine. <laughs> right? And they had the name of what the company did in the name of the, the company itself had that the name of, you know.
1: What you were selling, right, or what
0: you were buying? So it was very simple. So you ask me what I'm glad has those are gone. You know, days of, of your of long ago. Um, in the early days, people say, "Wow, it's amazing you were doing business in China." But in many ways, Jeremy and Kaiser, it was much easier. It was really simple. Huh. Um, you had nine companies. You didn't really. Go beyond there There, there wasn't again the Let's German edit that job. out
1: So that it seems like You know the, the early days Were still good and hard And we <laughs> can get some more You know credibility. for it. That's funny. You know, one of the things that I really like to ask American veterans of China who've just been there from the very early days of reform and opening is for their take on the almost comically wild oscillations in popular American attitudes or imaginings about China. Uh, you know, so walk us through how, how you see that narrative changing and what you think some of the inflection points might have been. Uh, do, you, do you see it now calming or, or maybe swinging with less of an amplitude or are we still... Seeing these wild swings? Oh,
0: unfortunately, I think we there are always wild swings in U.S. China relations. I'd like to think it's coming during the election period. The Chinese were my Chinese friends were very curious about the choice that we had between Clinton and Trump and, you know, hearing their views on the two. And of course, you know, we had very anti China rhetoric coming out of Trump. And you know his speech before congress last night china i don't believe i don't know if either you had the chance to see it i think um couldn't i myself. watched it it was an hour and 10 minutes um my son called me and that always takes priority so i missed just the time i was talking to him but i do not believe that china was mentioned once and there was nothing negative in what he had to say so you know, all of these swings, all of this crazy rhetoric. I think, you know, the Chinese are very practical people. They're patient. And I think they've been sitting back and just waiting for things. I mean, they're doing a lot of things. They're not just sitting back and waiting for how things sort out in the United States. But I think, you know, not being too concerned about some of the rhetoric because it has straightened itself out. On
1: mm. um, well, Madison um, Tillerson straightened him out any, anyway. <laughs>
0: yeah. Like- well, February ninth, um, President Trump had a phone conversation with Xi Jinping, and President Trump um, reaffirmed the one China policy. That's really important. You know, there is if there's one subject that is non negotiable in China, it is Taiwan, and that it's one country. So, I think he's. Trump is learning. I mean he's a there's a Chinese say he's a and he's a businessman. I'm not trying to make excuses for Trump, but it certainly is a lot better now, I think, than it was during his campaign in vis a vis China.
1: Ginny, would you be able to talk at all about some of the work you've been doing with with Snap, secretary of the Navy advisory panel? Uh were you maybe brought in with respect to the Trump administration's China policy, is that something you well, be- I
0: Well, I've served in the Pentagon for seven years, now going on eight years. When I was first asked, I actually heard from Chinese friends that I would be asked to serve in the Pentagon. I didn't even know how to say Pentagon in Chinese. Um, and that it was important that I do this because China needed to have a friend in the Pentagon and I just thought this is very peculiar and it goes back to my mother I guess talking about world peace and how important it is to be able to have the two countries communicate and and I was contacted about becoming a snap it required top secret clearance and I was told at the time that I have so many friends that are Chinese that I would never get cleared so it was easy for me to say yes because I figured I wouldn't get cleared and then I wouldn't be letting the US government down asking me to serve. And it took over a year for me to get cleared. And I and I started to think, wow, you know, maybe I'd have to leave America. And but anyway, that it was the first year of the Obama administration I didn't serve and I have served since then. And it's it's been a small group of people uh serving the Secretary of the Navy, providing advice. In my case, you, know, you can walk into a room where people have never been to China. They don't have Chinese friends. They don't speak the language. And I've made my voice heard that I think it's very important to have constructive engagement in China. And I have continued to serve on the Secretary of the Navy advisory panel. I have a meeting next week. I go down to the Pentagon when I'm called, and I feel that it's a it's a higher calling than my business. If I'm needed and I can be helpful, then I want to be helpful. And it's really, you know, when you see problems that have occurred between the US and China, maybe it's an overused expression, but a wu hui, you know, a misunderstanding. And you want to be real sure that there are no misunderstandings between the US and China, just because you don't speak the language or people are just scared to pick up the phone and Call somebody in China and say what's really going on, or they're unable to do that. So that's something that, frankly, I'm proud to be able to serve America, and I and I feel that I'm able to serve uh, China's interests as well.
2: I'd like to go back to a very different subject. I'm, you know, very curious about your early experiences with Chase Manhattan Bank in China in the late 1970s, and. Um, Specifically, one thing that has always seemed remarkable to me that I think you have some insight into is how a communist country that was just recovering from the trauma of the Cultural Revolution could so quickly nurture or perhaps revive a group of bankers, both people working at the central bank, but also at commercial banks who appear to be so competent. You know, what, what is their secret source? Wow.
0: Really good question. When I first went over in 1978, the Tong or the accompanier, the escort, the chairman of the Bank of China was our host. And uh, the escort had just come out of the Cultural Revolution. And, you know, I remember going out to the Great Wall for the first time with him in the delegation, and he was asking me to explain classical Chinese poetry to him. You know, his education <laughs> had been, I mean, it's an extraordinary concept for, you know, a la why, right? For a foreigner to be teaching a Chinese about classical Chinese. But, they really had, I mean, for 10 years, uh, people who were my contemporaries were not able to go to school. It was a very, very tough time um, during that that 10-year t- period. And so what's the secret sauce? On the Chinese side, I think the people that have really helped China to move up on the learning curve very quickly in terms of being bankers or being the economists are people who have been trained both in China and in the United States. An example is Zhu Min, who was the deputy director of the IMF, not the person in charge of China, but actually the number two at the IMF. And he actually went through the same program I did at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. He's a graduate of Fudan University. He also has a PhD. And that's somebody who has been educated... Overseas, n- namely, in America, and has worked in both countries, so people like that, I think are invaluable to bring Chinese back to China that have experience in the financial sector in the United States, have worked inside Chinese institutions in the case of the translator for the Bank of China in those days, the Bank of China was the regulatory bank, so what's now the people's Bank of china and he, at one point, wanted to come to the United States and work on Wall Street, and he did that, uh, and then went back and became vice chairman of Bank of China Private Equity, did Bank of China's acquisition of Singapore Line Leasing Corporation for a billion dollars cash. So what's the secret sauce? I think having the exposure and the experience, whether it's education or it's training in both countries makes those people particularly effective.
1: Yeah, I think if you were to look at the roster of people who've been staffing CBRC and, and CSRC and the and the PBOC, really from, I'd say, the early 90s, most of them were returnees. A right. lot of them had, had gone to LSE or to the Kennedy School or the Wilson School a lot of them had, you know, gone and done master's degrees, not just in economics, but in public policy and in, in government. And yeah, I mean, these are some very, very, very impressive folks. But I guess, Jeremy, your question is more about before that even, right?
2: Yeah, it just does seem
1: amazing how um, quickly they were able to you know, sort of put together this kind of cohort. Justin um, Lin, I mean, maybe he had, uh,
0: yeah, a I, I know him not that well. Um, there's some smart people who were identified. Uh, I know that from the work at the, with the Bank of China when I, I first went in with Chase and Chase's assets were blocked and we had to work on the unfreezing of the blocked assets and working on that with people who had been out in the countryside on the pig farm for 10 years. But in one of the keys, there were a few that were you know, had sort of a natural financial acumen and also spoke English. They may have um, been in some English schools. Uh, I think that was helpful. Or their parents spoke English and taught them English. And, you know, I'm just thinking about examples of people who have, have been able to um, really be helpful in China's financial system. Some of them don't speak English. Um, but I think in those early days, there were a handful of Chinese that that spoke enough English that they could really communicate with Western bankers.
1: So Ginny, you've actually lived and worked in Japan as well as in China.
0: I have, Tokyo.
1: Yeah. So so despite being a very close ally of the United States, shoulder to shoulder with us, as, as General Mattis has recently said, and, and often as a, a country that is perceived as much more open to the West... There are observers who would say that it's actually more difficult for foreign companies to do business in Japan than in China. Uh, so what's your take on that? I mean, would you compare the two countries in terms of their market access and ease of doing business for, for foreign companies?
0: I think being a foreigner in, a foreigner in Japan or a gaijin is a, is equivalent of Lawai, Uh, it's much more difficult. And even if I didn't speak Japanese, you know, if it's not a matter of the language, it's, it's a very, Closed society, it's an island nation. Uh, they're not open to Westerners, unlike China. In China, if you're in a Chinese home, that's pretty normal. And they call you Dajia, you know, they call you older sister or n- younger sister number two, because they're very open, they're very inviting. In Japan, when I was a lending officer in Tokyo, I was probably the only foreigner at Chase that was ever invited to a Japanese home, probably because I spoke the language, but it, I can count the number of times on the fingers of one hand, probably missing fingers, <laughs> mm-hmm. how many times I actually went to the home of any Japanese friend. So I think that's an indication um, of how foreign Japan really is. And if you look at Japan and you see how mo- modern it is, and before China built this train system, which is pretty extraordinary. I, I just took the train from Shanghai to Beijing about two weeks ago, and I keep taking the train because nothing like it. But when I lived in Japan, the bullet train didn't exist anywhere else in the world. And, you know, the women would be out, welcome you, irashaimase, you know, to come onto the train. And they had white gloves on and everybody's smiling. And it looks uh, to the untrained eye like it's really Western. And, and yeah, I can live here this is really easy. And the reality is that as a foreigner living in Japan, you really do not have a clue what's going on. You sit at a negotiating table, and the Japanese will say, ha 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 It's like, yes, 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 yes. But it probably means no, 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 or you have no idea what it means. Um, So I would say that Japan is far more opaque and less open to Working with Westerners, there are a few exceptions, um, specific financial institutions that have gotten close to Japanese banks. Um, so so there are exceptions. But overall, I would say that China is a much easier environment to mm. work in, certainly as a woman. As a woman yeah. in Japan, yeah, you're say, just I hitting mean- your head against the wall. Um, they asked me to stay on, and you know, one realizes that you can do certain things, but you're not – going to change deeply ingrained culture that is just not pro-women in the workplace. And I didn't want to spend my life doing that as much as I loved my job in Tokyo. uh, It was just culturally such that you could never really make a difference.
1: Jeremy, take us into the weeds here with this next question here.
2: Okay. So in the week before... uh the, we record this podcast, uh, there have been a number of interesting developments in government bodies that manage the financial sector and the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guo Shuching, the man nicknamed "Whirlwind Gore" for his bold directives trying to put China's stock market in order, stock markets in order between 2011 and 2013, was appointed chairman of the China Banking Regulatory Commission. But the two top Economic policy-making roles were given to men who were number twos at their respective organizations. Lifang was named chairman of the National Development and Reform Commission, while Zhongshan will become head of the Ministry of Commerce. The New York Times, and I'm sorry, this is a pretty nerdy question, but... <laughs> no, we, we, we <laughs> but I'm pretty sure. nerdy. <laughs> That's fine. So the New York Times commented that uh, the appointments of the latter two seem to be a commitment to the status quo in contrast to Gore's appointment. But both He and Zhong have previously worked quite closely under President Xi Jinping, which may give them the authority to undertake unpopular but necessary reforms. What's your read on what the, this reshuffle means for China's economy and financial sector?
0: I think it is a further consolidation of President Xi's authority. The Chinese will say that they pa right? They fear chaos. And if you talk to the People on the street they want to have a strong leader who has people who he trusts in place. So, you know, is it a bad thing? I don't think it's a bad thing. You know, China has the with the renminbi depreciation happening so precipitously, putting on capital controls. They have a whole lot on their plate right now, and. To have lots of people from different schools of thought, uh, it maybe make it a little bit harder to figure out what to do. It's hard enough to figure out what to do as is. You, you put on capital controls. How do you take them off? Do you need to have you know, people who have worked closely together, are trusted? I'm not reading too much into it. I'm not negative about it. Just I think it's a natural progression. You probably want me to say something that's like totally outrageous, but I, I just I don't think there's anything to really read into this. It's Um, always
1: a safe answer to say, "Oh, this is about Xi's consolidation
2: of power." (laughs) Well, I've given you a very safe answer. Um, (laughs) Well, if it's true and safe, that's fine. Right. If it's true, I mean, it was was interesting. It
0: was interesting last night to hear Trump speak about harmony, harmony, and um wending mm. wending what's that in english <laughs> social but, stability. right social stability and it was like they were similar words you know maybe she gave him a primer on how to run a country um i was Take like it you know i, I was so. like i was thinking in chinese as as our president speaking um and you know is he trying to be like she it's um that's a big job and you know how is this going to play out We really don't know. And again, I think putting on the capital control, so suddenly thinking through now, how do you, when does it change? What does it mean? What does it mean to Chinese? What does it mean to foreigners that have investment in China? It's all very complicated. So you need to have a core group of people working on this.
1: Jenny, you must get asked this a lot, but when are you going to write a book? Yeah.
0: Well, I'm very, the term is, uh, didia. What's that in English? Is uh, Low key. Low key. Um, so even doing this interview, I just, um, it's really about others. And I, I guess in, I don't know what year it was, sometime in the mid eighties, Adam Smith Money World did a 30 minute documentary about me and my firm. And I was so embarrassed by it. And, um, It ended up actually being used as the – it was translated into Chinese, and Lee Kuan Yew used it for the model for Singaporean women. Oh, wow. And you mentioned the Council on Foreign Relations. I got a call when he was coming to the council, and he wanted me to sit at his table next to his granddaughter to mentor his granddaughter. And that video, it was pre-internet, but it followed me around for a really long time. (laughs) And so, you know, would I write a book? I – I'm s- I'm just having so much fun. I love what I do. Do I wanna- take the time to write a book i'm i'm not even sure where i would begin i you know that documentary happened it was it actually won an award on pbs as the best documentary of the year
1: oh my gosh um,
0: despite my insisting that i wasn't going to do it but anyway it that was my sort of few moments of sort of being in the spotlight other than
1: then this think, well <laughs> this and
0: continental airlines magazine put me on their cover. And my mother was so excited. And uh, I said, well, now I can't fly Continental Airlines. It was um, the empress of the China trade with this big...
1: I saw that up there. I saw that. It was really stupid, right? Yeah, that's Um, a good photo. So my mom
0: wanted it. And I said, well, then you go fly Continental and have everybody (laughs) take the magazine and pass it to the center and forward. Um, But I... You know, I, I'm not the kind of person that really likes a spotlight, but a book. Maybe at some point, um, the the Adam Smith Money World Show. I was actually approached by Barbara Streisand Productions. Whether or not I would sell the movie right so I, it was sort of <laughs> funny you know I was like wow that's that's really weird but anyway i don't know the well, answer you to that you a
1: ghost writer i mean you know <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> do i have him right here <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think you do jenny <laughs> you Kowski, thanks well, thanks once again for taking no, the time well, to chat thanks. with us thanks for you and taking uh, the time yeah. to come here and the council's really just a few blocks up so okay well good. stick
1: around uh make a recommendation for our listeners won't you so before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to our newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at at News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash news. And if you like the Cynical Podcast, by all means, please do go leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps this really helps and it definitely does mean a lot to us so now on to recommendations jeremy you start. What do you have for us this week?
2: Well, I, I'm sorry to non-American listeners. And also, I know we have a few Trump supporters among our listeners. <laughs> no, I'm sorry don't. to all of, all of you. This recommendation isn't for you. But if, as many of my liberal American <laughs> friends seem to be going a little crazy um, and, uh, you know, struggling to sleep and uh, feeling angsty and anxious all day long, I, I recommend a kind of digital Xanax for you. Uh, it's an app, a smartphone app called Five Call. And you download it and it uh, geolocates you. And every day it gives you a list of issues uh, that you may be concerned about with the current administration. And it identifies uh, the congressman or senator that uh, you should call uh, in your district. Uh, gives you the phone number and even gives you a little speech if you don't feel like making up your own to uh, talk to your local representative about. And if you just do this every morning, you feel much more oh, relaxed.
1: This is great. <laughs> this is the best recommendation you've ever made on this show. I am so going to do this. I, I Yes, right. Yeah, absolutely. Five calls. Five calls. Oh, wow. Okay, man, I am on that right right away. Okay, Ginny, uh, what do you have for us for a recommendation?
0: Uh, well, I have something that's kind of fun. Oh, good. Um, You like fun. I have a a black and white video that was taken pre-1949 in China of Chinese ballroom dancing. And I got a real laugh out of it. It just It's like one minute or two minutes. It's not going to teach you anything about China, but I just thought that was fun. I'll share that with you. But on a more serious note, um, what do I recommend? I think, as I said... Chung Li is as good as... There are lots of very good people on China, but he's come out with this new book that I'm working my way through. Um, I just think he's really done something um, pretty... Uh, out there with his book. We, we
1: love him. He's been on our show. He oh, so there I'm preaching to the choir. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, oh, no he's He and great. I, he and In I fact, go back. Yeah. Last night, uh, we had our Sub China Advisory Board meeting and Chung Li was our guest speaker. He oh, spoke very briefly. I wish I'd known. really wish you'd been it. there. Yeah, he was so good. He and
0: I both served on the Board of Trustees of Princeton together uh-huh, uh-huh, at the same right, time. He was, he was a graduate student and um, with Lynn White. There, I was, yeah. yeah, he's just, you know, I, I feel like I knew. I knew him before anybody knew him, and I just had huge respect well, for him. Well, he scooped
1: my dissertation topic on technoc- technocrats and post <laughs> so I, I knew of him and was always resentful. Yeah. No, I would. I call him
0: if I'm going <laughs> no, he's, into he's a, a meeting, and I'm like, Chung, you know, what should I say? And, you know, he, what should I expect? And then he says, well, call me after the meeting and let me know how it went. And he's great.
1: He gave a really great rundown on possible scenarios uh, for the coming 19th Party Congress for sort of the big picture stuff, sort of, you know, Composition of the central committee and for, of course, the Politburo standing committee. Um, and we'll be talking to him again, Jeremy. It looks like hopefully in, in the the coming month.
0: Well, that'll be a much better interview than mine. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) no, no, no. He's,
1: he's, (laughs) there you go again with the Chinese modesty, Jim. Okay. So I'm going (laughs) to give us something totally wonderfully frivolous. Um, this is a recommendation that comes to me via my son who just came out of me, out of nowhere and said, dad, there's a product I want you to order on Amazon. And he said it's it's called Crazy Aaron's Thinking Putty, <laughs> and so I said oh, okay, why is this, this? I mean, so you know, I, I read a bunch of reviews. So it's this silicon putty, you know, like silly putty when we were kids. Remember? I don't know if you. Heard I that remember Africa,
0: silly putty. Right. You put it on cartoons. Exactly on and cartoons,
1: and you could stretch and their fingers. Put faces it on your, your nose. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but this is this is you know it has all those properties of silly silly putty except that it's you know it comes in all these. Beautiful metallic colors, uh, some of which change color under heat. Uh, Some of them, which are very powerfully magnetic. Actually, I mean the the putty itself has uh, is very very strongly magnetically charged. But the main thing you do with it is just keep it in your hand and squeeze it. And it's you know, as a guitar player, I, I like to like exercise my left hand, and and it's just great just to sit there with this stuff. And it's another stress relief thing. I feel like my blood pressure come down when I'm watching Donald Trump on TV and I can squeeze my putty. And
0: You should uh, give it to everybody yeah, just I, before you're
1: interviewing them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll get it you sounds one great. <laughs> it's great stuff, yeah. Crazy Aaron's Thinking Putty. Uh, check it out. <laughs> okay, that is my weird recommendation for the year. Ah, uh, Ginny. Thanks once again. I mean, we wish you continued success, and we hope that you'll have the chance to uh, to come talk to us again. And thank you so much for welcoming us to your office.
0: No, oh, it's a pleasure. It was great to walk in this morning and have both of you here. I'm I'm used to seeing you on SubChina, hearing you on SubChina, <laughs> and you ask me what I read. I don't want to just give you a you know a free ad, but I I happen to SubChina comes up and it's I click on it instantly. You guys are doing a good job.
1: All right, check us in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks to An Le Cheng and Sarai Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care.